Welcome to the SIDCast. This is Sid Finkelstein. It's great to have you listening again. And today, my guest is Jennifer Tietz. Jen has had a career in the U.S. Uh, Navy for over a decade. And um, you, do you remember where you were on 9-11? Uh, I, I actually, I, I remember. I was, uh, uh, I was up in, in Hanover, New Hampshire, um, just doing some uh, errands. I think it was a Tuesday morning. And uh, the radio was on and... Uh, uh, car radio was on, and you you hear this report, and it sounds really kind of odd, but you barely are noticing, and then you start noticing. And you know, Jennifer was uh, actually on a uh, on a ship in the Northern Arabian Sea uh, when that was happening, and you can just imagine what that must have been like uh, to get the first reports, try to figure out what's going on, and then realize your life your life is is, is about to change and about to change dramatically. To some extent, that was true. Uh, for a lot of people that, uh, you know, we're not in the military at, at all. Um, our, our comfort, our safety, our security uh, changed at that time and, uh, and, and, and hasn't gone away. But if you are one of the fighting men and women that um, have uh, volunteered to help keep the United States uh, safe and secure, uh, it's, a whole other, it's a whole other story. And, uh, uh, and, Jen, uh, and Jen was, uh, it was and is that, uh, that person. Her career is remarkable, and I wanted her to, uh, to join us on the, on the SIDCast to kind of tell, tell her story, um, uh, her story in the military, her story, um, well, growing up and some of the challenges she had uh, as, a, uh, as a woman uh, in the Naval Academy and how she persevered and, uh, and didn't let anything stop her uh, to, uh, to her career post, uh, uh, post-military, which has uh, continued to be well, blue chip and dynamic and always, always growing, uh, which is uh, certainly one of the themes of the SIDCast. How do we keep growing? How do we craft our careers? How do we, how do we create something that, uh, that is meaningful for, uh, for us? And, uh, and Jen has done that, and Jen continues to, uh, to do that and makes for a, uh, makes for a fascinating guest. So um, let's, uh, let's welcome uh, Jennifer Teets into the SIDCast uh, studio. Welcome to another episode of the SIDCast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and my guest today is Jennifer Teets. Hi, Jen. Hi, how are you? Thanks. Um, it's it, great to be here. It's great to have you on. You are a former student of mine, no less. Indeed. Uh, and, Still uh, a student of yours. Well, that's very complimentary. Untrue, but uh, nice to hear. Uh, you have had such an interesting, and continue to have, because you're quite young, an interesting career. And you were in the um, in the military for a long time. And I want to... And, I want to know when you first got this idea in your head. Like, why did you want to go? Why did you want to serve? And how old were you in this? I was thirteen. Thirteen. And this all happened because my parents got a free vacation from I, I don't remember why, but they wanted to go to San Diego, and I was determined that California was the worst, and I only wanted to go to Florida because that's where Disney World was, Not and they you. were unwilling to go to Disney World again, so they planned a trip to Washington D.C. And we went to Washington, D.C., and they decided to visit the Naval Academy. Uh. My dad's uncle had served in the Navy, Mm -hmm. and so my parents had been to a Naval Academy graduation before I was born. Mm -hmm. And they thought, well, why don't we bring Jen there? The Naval Academy is beautiful. So we went, and I was just awestruck with the surroundings, with the honor, the courage, the commitment. People told me it was hard to get into. I thought, oh, I like this. I like a good challenge. And it just seemed like people there had a purpose. 
um, to the, they had a purpose to their study, but a purpose to their life. Mm-hmm. And they were dedicated to something bigger than themselves. Right, right. And it doesn't hurt that it was probably the first college campus I ever walked on. So just this idea as a 13 year old of being grown up and going to college mm-hmm. was great in itself. Right. Uh, you, you weren't there for graduation though. It was just, you were on the campus. Correct. We yeah. just went for a tour. So what, what did you see when you walked, walked around and what does it look like? So the Naval Academy, as you see it now, was basically built in the early 1900s, and it was built by an architect who studied in Paris. Um, As all architects should do at some point in their lives. Right. So he designed the Naval Academy in the French Renaissance style of architecture. Mm -hmm. So you see a lot of buildings that are atypical to see in the United States, built of stone with, you know, Columns and buttresses, and I mean, it's yeah. just—it's an it, impressive looking. It was—it was beautiful, and it was also built very purposefully, which I think is neat. That it was built in the shape, kind of of a cross, symbolizing the mission of the Naval Academy. So morally, mentally, and physically, and so there were and academics, of course. So there was the portion that was the academic buildings. There was one that was the dorm, large dorm in the mm-hmm. United States, that was symbolizing the the professional. Aspect. There was the chapel, which was supposed to symbolize the moral aspect mm-hmm. of the mission of the academy. And then the fourth bit was the, the athletic fields, which symbolized the physical aspect of the training at the Naval Academy. So it was built in a very purposeful, very symmetric way. Um, and it was just, I think, visually stunning. But then the other thing you saw was a bunch of midshipmen walking around in formations, marching in their white uniforms. Mm-hmm. Um, looking tidy and Are you put always together. in the uniform when you're a student there? Mostly. So for the first two years, yes. After the first two years, you are allowed to wear civilian clothes when you go on liberty. At least that's the way it was when I was there. I, I assume it's mm-hmm. changed a bit in the several years preceding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So, so, but this captured you at the age of 13, and you stuck with it when it was time to go to college. I mean, that's quite a, uh, I mean, that, kids will see all sorts of things, but it doesn't always stick with them. I think I was more than stuck with it. I was obsessed. <laughs> I changed the entire course of my high school curriculum. I decided that the high school I was going to was not going to prepare me to get into the Naval Academy for various reasons. So I sought out and went to a different high school, uh, which was the most amazing school. You, you sought it out, not your parents? Correct. I did. And you told them, I want to go here? Yes. Which was terrifying for my mother because it was a residential high school. And so it was sophomore, junior, and senior year of high school. It's a three-year high school, and it's residential. Um, the state of Illinois pays for it. Most of our teachers were PhDs who didn't care to do research but loved teaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they were people who were quite, quite bright in the fields in which they taught. And it was also a small enough school that I could be on a varsity uh, sports team, which I was not going to be in my first high school. <laughs> what, what was the name of the school? The Illinois Math and Science Academy. So it's one of the top high schools. It is. Really in the country. It is. Yeah. And so how did uh, you, you, you left home really quite young. I did. That, that would have been tough because you, you don't have any brothers or sisters, right? I don't. So how did your parents deal with that? I, think I mean, they let you go. They were they wanted you to go. Or maybe <laughs> they, they had did. no choice in the beginning they of They did. I think that they were both proud that I wanted to, you mm-hmm. know, that I was, that I had identified a goal for my life and that I was doing the things that I needed to do to achieve that goal. I think my father 
would say that he's incredibly passionate about education. My mom is too. They were they were both teachers uh, early mm-hmm. in their careers. Mm-hmm. So the fact that I wanted to go to such an amazing academic institution was exciting for them. And I think they knew I was safe there, but it was it was certainly hard for them. It was 45 minutes from my house, so I got to see my family a lot more than many of my classmates. Yeah, right. Right. But um so how uh I mean that was that was tough for them. I'm curious how how did you, or maybe we could generalize, I don't know, because you do coach a lot of young people as well now. Uh, how do people become so strong-willed? <laughs> uh, were you born this way? I suspect I was. I know I was one of those little girls who's called bossy, a phrase I absolutely hate, and I cringe whenever somebody says that about my daughter. Um, I was very, I was a leader at a young age, I think. I was... I was a leader at a young age. I was bright. Uh, My parents did a great job of making sure that my academic curiosity was satiated while not pushing me too hard. And I think I got very lucky there because a lot of parents would see, would have a bright kid and they'd think, oh, we just need to push. So Mm -hmm. when they had the opportunity for me to skip a grade. They said, no, actually, we think we, she should stay in the grade she's in. Mm-hmm. And then they made choices to where we live to make sure that I had good schools growing up, and they were excited to help me learn yeah. when I was at home. Yeah. So I think part of it was that I just had a real appetite for learning when I was young. Um, the determination thing, though, I, I have always been pretty single-minded about things, even more so when somebody tells me I can't do something. Mm-hmm. I really enjoy proving people wrong when, mm-hmm. and I think I am also quite competitive, though not necessarily against other people. I'm competitive with myself and I'm competitive with the standard. So I like to be above average. So I've just been pretty focused on that mm-hmm. since I was 13. Right. Yeah. Competitive with yourself. That's often what you see for very high achievers because that's the toughest competition in some way. Uh, the toughest psychological competition. I mean, there could always be somebody better at something. Of course, there always is. Uh, so you end up at the U.S. Naval Academy. Uh, how many women were in your class, more or less? Um, so about, I think we graduated just shy of 100 women out of our class of 965. So, and that had, no doubt has increased for a period of time. It has. It has. I, so the combat exclusion law was lifted in 93. I graduated in 2001, which was eight years later. So women weren't even serving in command positions when I graduated. So how do you so one of the things people have written about a lot, and I think it makes eminent sense, is that women need role models in senior positions. They need to see what's possible. And you would not have had that because of what you just explained, right? There would not have been women in senior positions. How do I mean... How, how do you deal with that, or how do, what could be done about that, or how did you think about that? Because you didn't have that. No, that's really true, and it's something I reflect on a lot and talk to a lot of my female classmates about, because even the women who were in senior positions, in many cases, they weren't willing mentors. Why not? I'm not sure if it's because they had to struggle, so they perceived that mm-hmm. they had overcome something, and therefore we should have to as well. I I heard a lot of women in the military try to downplay the fact that they were women. They didn't want to be called a female Marine or a female officer. Mm-hmm. They just wanted to be an officer. They w- So in 
disavowing that part of their identity, it also, I think, got rid of their compunction to mentor people. Um, so mm-hmm. even the women that were senior early in my career, they weren't particularly warm and welcoming as far as mentorship. As my career progressed, I think that changed because because the volume changed. The volume of women coming in just got bigger and bigger. And those of us who went through it thought, actually, it doesn't need to be this way. Maybe we should mentor. So that's something I did a lot of as I got to be more senior in the Navy was trying to find the women who were coming up after me and, and help them. How many of your teachers were women? That's a great question at the Naval Academy. So the Naval Academy faculty is half military, half civilian. And it's unique in that because both West Point and the Air Force, I believe, are are a little bit higher towards the military. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't recall really having many more than one or two female military instructors. Mm -hmm. And I'd say the the civilian faculty was heavily weighted towards male, but I don't remember... Yeah. So again, it's another example where role models could come from, and there weren't there weren't a lot of them. And so, uh, did you feel any degree of discrimination as a woman? I mean, there's a hundred, so that's a lot, but that's ten <laughs> percent, or what is that? One out of nine, eleven percent. Um, I shouldn't say did you feel, but in what ways did you feel it? It was really my first ship was hard because I had an executive officer and a commanding officer who, when they were coming up, had never worked with women because of the aforementioned combat exclusion law. And so my commanding officer was great and took his leadership role very seriously. My executive officer, for whatever reason, I will probably never know, had mentioned at one point to someone that he had a goal of making every woman on the ship cry. And he certainly made me cry, not out of sadness, but out of fury because he Hmm. was... He was very, he was just a negative leader in general. Mm-hmm. He, I recall one experience in particular where we were all standing outside on the bridge of the ship and there were a lot of people out there because the ship was undergoing some sort of a special evolution and one of my pieces of equipment was broken and I went up to talk to him about that And he just, he started screaming at me to the point where there was saliva spraying from his mouth. Everybody was standing there stunned, thinking, what's happening? I was standing there with my eyes like saucers. And my direct boss, the operations officer, put his hand across across my shoulders and basically pushed me out of the, pushed me back. Because he saw that I was about to end my career there. Because I got to the point where this executive officer had just pushed me past my tipping point mm-hmm. of humiliation. And that was just kind of the way he led. And early in my career, I saw a lot of people who led like that. And I think the Navy has done a great job since then of taking filtering those leaders or la- non-leaders, non-leaders out. Yeah. Of, of the pipeline before they get to positions where they can really have that level of influence. But it was a, it was a culture change. And I, was, I joined the surface Navy at a time of great change mm-hmm. for the culture. And I was there on the early end. And by the time I left, I saw that things had greatly changed. Um, so that was one way I felt discrimination as a female. Just there were people who didn't want 
women there. And I think the other way was socially at the Naval Academy, it was quite hard as a woman. I think a lot of women go to college and they're able to explore what it means to be pursued and to pursue and to have mm-hmm. romantic relationships and to have friendships with the opposite sex. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, it's it's an age where people are learning a lot about themselves. And at the Naval Academy, when I was there, women were a, women were not nice to one another. So we didn't band together and help one another. But the men, in many cases, they would say that dating a woman, dating a woman at the Naval Academy was dark siding. Like dark siding. Mm-hmm, yeah, like like Star Wars, dark siding. Why did they um, say that? I, the perception was that there are all these beautiful, lovely civilian women. Mm-hmm. Why would you date one of these women who is clearly, you know, overly aggressive or by definition to or be too hit. tough or yeah. you know any of huh. any of these things any of these qualities that maybe mean that we weren't you know soft and genteel and mm-hmm. and the things that the wow. culture led to so I, I left the naval academy really feeling a lot of professional confidence but very little personal confidence yeah. Wow, that's a tough, tough environment. And do you know what the composition of male-female is now these days at Academy? I don't know. I think it's, I mean, it's certainly upwards of 25% women. Yeah. Um, so it's it's a lot more. And I things there have changed quite a bit. I worked at the Naval Academy from 06 to 09. And even by then, I saw that the way the women interacted with one another had changed. It was already different. So this was pretty early days, really, when you were there and people were trying to figure it out. Women had, the first class graduated in 1980 um, from the of women. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was 21 years later, so you think things would have changed, but I spent 20. a lot of time talking to some of those early alum, and things hadn't changed as much as they would have hoped. Did, did some of those people stay in the military? Some of them did, some certainly, them did. but the, the women who graduated in those early years didn't have the opportunity to um, go into the combat professions in the same way that I did when I so graduated. what would they have done after graduating? Uh, they did a example. variety of things, supply corps, human resources, um, a lot of the kind of non-frontline, not necessarily on a combat ship or aircraft. A lot of them would fly, but they wouldn't fly aircraft that could ever so be in combat situations. So were there any particular limits on women or on you in particular when you did uh, serve on a, on a ship um, in terms of combat? When I graduated, women still weren't on submarines, and they weren't allowed to be Navy SEALs, and they weren't Is that different now? in the infantry and the Marines. So they women are definitely on submarines now um, and doing amazing stuff on submarines, and the people who have worked with women on submarines say that submarines are better for having women there. Um, still not Navy SEALs, and then within infantry and Marines, there have been a lot of changes in kind of the last two years in that yeah. as well. Is there any reason why a woman cannot be a Navy SEAL? Because you think about these as these superhuman people that could do anything, and that that's not a job description that automatically excludes women. But is there something physical about that job that I, would make I it? I think not every woman could do it, but not every man could either. Exactly, exactly. Let's take a short break, and we'll come back and uh, talk to uh, Jen about uh, how that career progressed and some of the some of the challenges that happened along the way. We'll be right back. We're back with, uh, with Jen Teets. You know, at the break, we just did a quick uh, check. Our uh, erstwhile uh, producer, Ben, uh, found out that today 27% of the students at the U.S. Naval Academy are women. So that's that's significant increase from the 10% from, from your day. And, you know, we were also chatting about, you know, why, why do people do this and what career do they do? And one 
thought is that if your father could have been mother more recently, but if one of your parents, let's say, um, went to the military, you're more likely to go to the military. And that's, that's probably true, right? Because you're, you're talking about legacy as well. Yeah, I think so. I, the military for many people, and I, and I got a lot of this, especially because my entire service was after 9-11. A lot of people stopped being in the airport and say, thank you for your service, or I could never do what you do. And so people have a perception of what the military is and what people in the military do based on what they've seen largely on television or in movies. Mm-hmm. So if if I was a mom and my child wanted to go in the military and I knew nothing about it, that might be scary, whereas I'm a mom who was in the military, and if my daughter were to say she wanted to go, I might be more likely to to encourage her because it's it's less scary, and I know the the actual way they spend their days and months and years versus what Hollywood would say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think it, it just lends towards I think it, I kids. Think it's really interesting um, to think about kids, and maybe especially daughters, although I don't know. I mean, I have a daughter. Um, but I know a lot of professors had a father or a mother that were also professors. Like, I, I didn't do the study. I haven't seen the data. I sense it's disproportionate to other career tracks, but it might, it might not be. Um, and maybe you see, you know, your mom or your dad, and they're happy, or they they enjoy their career. Or maybe you, kind of what you said is, is there's a push and a pull. The kid sees something and says, this looks great, um, and I respect, even though you complain along the way, you respect your mother and your father. <laughs> uh, or the parents uh, encourage, encourage that. You see that in banking. You see that in certain fields. I think it, it's a value system, right? You value education a lot, and your daughter grew up seeing that. So maybe she grows up to think that education is a noble profession. Whereas my father served in Vietnam, and he spoke very highly of the military and what the military can do. And I heard that growing up. And we also are a family that's very into giving back and thinking about other people and mm-hmm. public service. So that was what I grew up valuing. So I think that's, and maybe investment bankers grew up valuing the idea of creating value in capital markets. So. I liked how you uh, phrased that. <laughs> um, it was delicate. <laughs> it was delicate <laughs> and effective. Uh, you probably have some <laughs> classmates that are going to be happy with that framing. Um, so you mentioned your father uh, served in Vietnam and I'm, I don't know whether whether he ever talked about that, and especially how he was treated or perceived by the public, which, as far as I could tell, and maybe movies are informing me more than they should, it was as opposite as could be to people that have served over the last, you know, 18 years. Um, Did did you ever talk about that with your dad, or did he ever talk We've certainly talked about his time in Vietnam. I don't know that we've ever really touched on how he was treated other than him making some remarks about how he's happy. And my mom has said this as well, that he, he's happy that the American public has finally realized how important it is to support the military. Yeah. Yeah. Um, where were you on September 11th? I was sitting in the wardroom, which is where the officers eat on the USS O'Kane eating dinner, DDG 77. So destroyer based out of Pearl Harbor. Uh, we were, somewhere in the vicinity of the Northern Arabian Sea. We were planning a port visit a few days after that, which understandably got canceled. And at the time, most of our communication systems, as far as email on the ship, were down. They were doing some maintenance. 
And so we heard about this because the aircraft carrier, I mean, this was quite early days for satellite TV. Aircraft carrier had satellite TV. They saw it on CNN. Uh, They called over to us on the Navy communication systems, and that's how we we heard about the events of 9-11. And it was interesting because it was right around dinner time, and then throughout the throughout the night, I was standing watch most of that night, we kept getting bits and pieces of extra information. Mm-hmm. So we got the report of the first plane hitting, and then we got the report of the second plane. Then we, there were, then we got a report that the U.S.-Mexican border had been closed. I mean, so all sorts of mm-hmm. just little pieces of information coming in. So most people who were alive and you know, old enough to remember, have very vivid memories of seeing the footage and the images. We really didn't see images for days after it happened because our emails were down. So any information that we got was just hearing about it. And that was interesting to me when I then visited the, the memorial in in New York because it evoked in me something completely different than the person I was with who had Mm -hmm. been at home watching it on TV. Mm -hmm. And I had a very different, almost removed sense of Mm. the buildings as opposed to where I was and the feelings that I was having as I joined a peacetime Navy and then all of a sudden we were at war, but we weren't sure with who. Right, right. So what what was going through your head um, in those hours? Uh, More information's coming in, false information, accurate information. Um, What was going through, especially where where you were? You were were in the Middle East. The first thing that was on my mind was concern because I didn't know where my dad was, and he traveled a lot for business, and he also lived in Pittsburgh, and I knew that one of the planes had had crashed outside of, in in Pennsylvania. So I was very worried about my dad. I think my second concern was my mother and knowing how worried she'd be about me. Mm -hmm. And then it, just this unbelievable tsunami of patriotism Mm. that came after that. We took on fuel from another ship the next day. And when two ships take on fuel from one, or when a ship takes on a fuel from an oiler, it's a very dangerous evolution. They're quite close together. You can see the people on the other ship. It's kind of a slightly intimate, but not a fair when you're taking on fuel and supplies. But we needed this because we weren't sure what our next tasking would be. And we needed full tanks and we needed a full refrigerator of of food for the crew. Um, So we were doing this. And then, of course, somebody played Lee Greenwood's Proud to be an American as the two ships were parting from one another. And I don't think there was a person that was out there that wasn't both ticked off and crying mm. like everybody was angry and there's like mm-hmm. I, you know the the toby keith songs were in the back of your mind of like i don't even know if he'd written them at that point or if he wrote <laughs> them afterwards but he had some pretty good angry american songs and but then this proud to be an american and this sense of patriotism and we're going to do whatever we can to make what happened to all these innocent people right mm-hmm. but having no idea how we were going to do that and what our tasking would be and uh yeah and what happened after that, and after the first few days? Did you get an assignment specifically about what you needed to do? Yeah, we did. We spent a bunch of time in the in the Persian Gulf, basically watching and corralling, I guess would be a good word, traffic out of both Iran and Iraq. Um, what does that mean? So 
Iraq in particular was under a lot of sanctions mm-hmm. at the time, and a lot of them were where they were allowed to export their oil. Um, so mm-hmm. we were watching for ships to – there's only a very small port in Iraq. They don't have a huge coastline. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were kind of monitoring that and waiting yep. for ships to come out and stopping them and spending – we would – the it was called maritime interdiction, and the Navy was doing a lot of it at the time. And it was it was interesting because it wasn't – we were not at the tip of the spear, the mm-hmm. way you would call it. I think we all would have preferred to be – sitting closer to Afghanistan and lobbing missiles into Afghanistan, trying to take down Osama bin Laden. Mm -hmm. Um, But with everything, there are all sorts of pieces to make the ship run or make the mission happen. And we were playing a really vital role in stability in the region. It didn't feel like it at the time. But I can look in retrospect, just like when I was on the aircraft carrier, the planes were flying missions into both Iraq and Afghanistan as part of Iraqi freedom and enduring freedom. But the people who were on the mess decks making lunch for the crew were just as important mm-hmm. as the pilots who were in the cockpit of those ships because every single person made it happen together and was part of the crew and part of the mission. And that's where we were after 9-11. We were part of the overall mission and we were a critical part, but I think we were kind of making the lunch on the mess decks instead of being the pilot of the of the yeah. plane. Did you ever, um, were you afraid that there would be an attack on the ship given where you were and what happened? Definitely, definitely. I think going in and out of the Persian Gulf is always a dicey affair. <laughs> um, Persian Gulf, Arabian Gulf, depends on who you ask. They all have different perspectives as mm-hmm. to what it should be called. But you have to go through the Straits of Hormuz, he, complete uh, coastline with Iran through the Straits of Hormuz. They don't particularly like us coming in and out of the Straits of Hormuz. That's always been scary. It was scarier then, and it's scary now. Right. So I think that was the most... It was tense. And also when we were stopping these ships, oftentimes we were sending crews from our ship over to stop these oil tankers coming out, and they knew they were smuggling. They were armed. They were angry, and they were trying to get past us. So I think it was always a little bit unsettling without knowing what could happen mm-hmm. next. But I certainly don't feel like the Marines who were on the ground felt, for sure. Yeah, I think they certainly had a much more tangible sense. And I know this because I spent a year in Iraq. Um, and my fear of getting killed was much more real when I was in Iraq than when I was on the ship. When I was on the ship, there was always this full sense of security that you have steel walls surrounding you, Mm. which is true. But as we know, ships sink. Um, People can die on ships. It it was certainly Mm -hmm. a real danger, but I did not feel it nearly as keenly as my mother. (laughs) Right. And so what were you doing then when you were on the ground in Iraq? At what point did that happen? So I was there from, I guess, the entirety of 2007. And I was supposed to be on shore duty, and I got told one day that I was going to go spend a year in Iraq working at Camp Buka, which was a detention center. So 2007... Detention for? Yeah, so uh, people that were... Let me back up. So 2007 was the year of the surge into Iraq. So Mm -hmm. we'd been in Iraq for four years. I think there was a decision on the senior levels of the military and the government to say, like, if we're going to win this war, we really need to have a big push. So there was a big troop surge into Iraq. Um, 
as such, there were a lot more conflicts and offensives happening on the ground. And anybody who was perceived to be a threat to the military for any number of reasons um, would have been detained and sent to one of the detention centers. And so I was there shortly after the Abu Ghraib incident um, where some just not great people with poor oversight and you know, poor morals did some horrible things to detainees um, in Abu Ghraib, and that facility was shut down. But it was actually a great time to be in a detention center because it was run in an incredibly moral way that's representative of the ideals of the United States and the ideals that we espouse abroad. Um, the leader I was working for is one of the finest leaders I've ever worked for. And many of the detainees would would have said that they felt well-treated, respected, well-cared for. Um, so we had about 20,000 detainees. 20,000? 20, 20,000. Um, That's a gigantic logistics effort on top of everything else. It was. It was. What, what was your role, Jen? So I was the battle captain. The, the commander of the facility ran the overall facility, but I was the nighttime battle captain. So there was a control center that oversaw all aspects of the operation of the facility from making sure that their food was delivered to if somebody escaped, what would we do then? Or the detainees, unfortunately, would occasionally kill one another, and so we would oversee the response to things like that. Um, so I, I was the senior person on site at night. At night. But so. nighttime was when the things happened, you can imagine, because it's quite hot during the day. Mm. So the detainees slept during the day, and, and at night was when they got up to their hijinks. So did you have much direct interaction then with detainees as part of this job? I had a bit, um, mainly because it was an all-male facility, and one of my friends who was ha- had a role in helping to identify which detainees should be in which compounds, and you know, I just had a role like learning more about what was happening and understanding the goings-on of the facility, he would take me with him to talk to them because oftentimes they hadn't seen a woman in a long time. Mm -hmm. So they, I had my own, they gave me a a name, an Arabic name, and they would make, braid me presents or like bracelets from, you know, the strings from their costumes or not costumes, I'm sorry, their uh, like uniforms that they had. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I saw a number of detainees, um, but not, no, I wasn't, that was not my primary role, and I only went from time to time when I was asked. So how did you feel about that particular tour of duty that you had? That you had? I mean, that was different than being on a ship, different than being an aircraft carrier, um, but you were right in the, you are on, on land, and you're in the middle of um, there are 20,000 people. They're not all bad people, but there are going to be some bad people in there. There were some really bad dudes. Um, <laughs> there were some really bad bad people in there. Um, and then many, many who were not. Many who happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time um, and looked suspicious or said the wrong thing. Yeah. It, it was um, – and shortly after leaving there, many of them – you know, this, the facility was disbanded probably a year or two years after I left. Mm-hmm. Um, so they all went somewhere. But – it's interesting because you asked me earlier if I was ever nervous or afraid when I was on mm-hmm. my ships, and the answer ultimately is no, not really. I was scared to go to Iraq. I was quite sure I was going to die there. 
Mm. It was an illogical fear that I had when I was selected to go. And going, A, going was not an option. I had to go. It was my orders. But it ended up being the most... I hate the word impactful, but impactful mm. tour of my military career. Because? Because it pushed me really far outside of my comfort zone. Mm. And also, my life there was quite simple. So I worked for my 12-hour shift, and we were contained to the base that we were on. So when I wasn't working, I was in my pod, which is kind of like a semi-trailer. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in my pod with my air conditioning and my books. I finished my master's degree while my first master's degree while I was there. Um, I worked out a lot. My life was simple. And I think having the opportunity at a point in my life where I wasn't sure what the next step was to step back and really reconnect with myself and what I wanted and be in a place where maybe I thought my life wasn't going to go further beyond that. So I had to think if it was, what was I going to do with Mm. it? And it ought to mean something that was, uh, it really changed my life being there. I I came back a different person physically, mentally, morally, spiritually than the person who left. And I feel I was better on all of those fronts. We're talking to Jen Teets. Uh, let's take a short break and come right back. Welcome back to the SIDCast. I'm here with Jen Teets. And Jen, you were just talking about that experience you had in Iraq in the detention center and how change your change your life and I think you were probably on the way to ending your career in the military moving on to civilian life but you end up staying a lot longer what what triggered that that's a great question I you and you're right I was thinking about I went to Iraq and when I got those orders I thought I'm definitely getting out now there's no way I'm subjecting myself to this any longer and as I mentioned I had a complete transformation of mind, body, character when I was there. And I came back and I was stationed at the Naval Academy and had the opportunity to meet a bunch of midshipmen. And I thought, you know what, my time in the Navy is not done because I still have a lot of mentorship to do. And I felt like I was in a place where I could go back to sea, have a couple of really great leadership jobs. A lot of people will say that that department head level in the Navy is the best time because when I was an operations officer, I had about 150 people in my department. So I really had an amazing amount of leadership opportunity. And I saw after I came back from Iraq, the potential in having that leadership Mm -hmm. opportunity. And I had just renewed my sense of why I joined the military to begin with, this sense of giving back and this sense of duty. And I just found that again when I was in Iraq. So I decided to, I also thought that I could move to San Diego and stay there forever. I, because <laughs> remember I said I didn't want to go to San Diego. Yes, but then you realize how amazing that place is. Well, then when I came back from Iraq, as kind of a gift, they allowed me to go to San Diego for a month to oversee one of the midshipman programs. And I thought, where has this place been my whole life? And my dad quickly reminded me that I could have been there at 13, but then my life would have taken a decidedly different course. But I thought, well, I could go live in, in San Diego for the rest of my career. I could go back. I could be on ships. I could lead people. I could mentor the next generation and I really liked that idea but you didn't end up doing that did you I did not so what happened 
the Navy told me I had to leave San Diego. (laughs) (laughs) And that was the end of it. (laughs) No, so I I did, I got orders to San Diego. I went to be an operations officer. It was the best tour of my career. I really, really enjoyed that tour. And then I went to be the reactor training assistant on an aircraft carrier in Washington that then went back to Virginia. And I think... it's tongue-in-cheek to say that they made me leave San Diego, but I think there was something that sat underneath that, which was I felt like I didn't have a lot of choices over where I was going mm-hmm. and when I was home. I spent probably three and a half years of my 13-year career completely gone on deployment, not to mention all the other months at sea. And then I had, by the time I left, I'd moved seven times in 12 years. Yeah. And it just got to be a lot, and I wanted to settle down. I... When I was a kid, I all of the women in my life were wives and mothers, mm-hmm. and I thought that was what you were supposed to do in life. And there I was at you know, 33, no closer to being a wife or a mother than when I was 23 and just leaving college, or 22 and just leaving college. And I thought it's not going to happen if I keep moving around every 18 to 24 months. Right. And so I decided to leave, which was hard. It was yeah. a really hard decision because I think I was good at it and I liked it. Yeah, and 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 you, that's that's when you went to business school. It is to the tech school, no less. To the at tech Dartmouth. school. Um, and so, what? Tell us about that transition because, um, and that's got to be a gigantic transition. You were in the service for for how many years? Twelve, thirteen years, maybe. Almost thirteen years. Yeah. And and now you're going not just to civilian life, but kind of this little place in the middle of nowhere, northern New England, <laughs> uh, with this cult following uh, and really different world. It was a different world. And incidentally, when I came to Tuck to do my interview, I remember walking through the town afterwards thinking, wow, what – very similar to the thought I had about the Naval Academy. What an incredible place. It's beautiful. It's steeped in tradition. It dedicated to academic excellence. Like, this is my kind of place. Um, And just being really excited about the opportunity, but also realizing that that very thing I was getting out of the Navy for, more stability in my life, I was signing up to not have any stability in my life. Because? Because I was going to go to business school for two years, and then when you leave business school, you go to a fancy, high-powered career where you have to travel. And, you know, this was my perception at the time. Mm. And so I also remember thinking to myself, gosh, if I want to have kids, I'm not getting any younger. I should probably freeze my eggs. I opted not to. Um, but it was I was thinking at that moment about, you know, how does this conflict with my other life purpose, which is to be a wife and a mother? You're right. And that, those thoughts were happening as you were coming to business school? I, during While the day were... I interviewed, as a matter of fact, for talk. So, yeah, that was happening then. Because you could, you could kind of project what this next stage of career was going to be like. Yeah. yeah. I, I think I, I, had, I had some friends who had left the military a few years before me and who I'd watched go through these transitions. Yeah. Uh, so I, I assumed that my path would follow theirs. Incidentally, it exactly mirrored theirs. Really? Uh, with the exception of Tuck, they went to different business schools, but mm. we all ended up at McKinsey in London. So <laughs> <laughs> It seems like a, almost a cliche, right? Um, and so what was the Tuck experience like for you in a nutshell? It was really interesting. I had this thought that maybe Tuck would make up for the fact that I hadn't had a normal undergraduate experience, that I would kind of have this fun, I'm in college, I get to party aspect. What I didn't really factor in was that I was in my (laughs) mid-30s and my body and my, you know, mental 
desire to do mm-hmm. that sort of thing were just gone. Right. Um, so I think I went to a few parties at business school and really just did not recover well and then stopped going. Um, so business school was an interesting exploration because I came here thinking that I would have two years to figure out what I wanted to do, which was completely untrue. My friend Paige, who I who I just mentioned, had asked me when I got into Tuck, she said, so what what do you want to do after Tuck? I said, I don't know, Paige. I have two years to decide. She said, no, Jen, you have about two months to decide <laughs> before you need to know because recruiting starts. So I think that was surprising for me. Academically, I absolutely ate it up. I've, I've always been kind of an over-the-top student who spends time doing every reading and prepping for every class and really trying to learn the most from my classes. And, and I think I was very fulfilled in that regard. The social aspect was completely different than anything I had ever experienced. Say a little bit more about, about that. She's smiling now as she <laughs> thinks about what can I say to a global audience about this? Um, so I think in the military, I was surrounded by some real salt-of-the-earth people who were honest and hardworking and didn't necessarily come from means, mm-hmm. either you know God-given means or human-given means. Like they, I mean, they came from poor backgrounds or they you know weren't very bright, but man, they worked really hard and they were dedicated to one another and they cared for one another and they were dedicated to giving back to the country. So I think I struggled when I came to business school feeling that the people who were around me had this same sense of wanting to give back to those around them and give back to the country. I think people were, you know, having spent a few years as a consultant since then, I understand where a lot of my classmates came from and the intensity with which they were working. And therefore, I understand the reason they approached business school in the way they did. But it was, yeah, it was just hard for me socially to be with people who had very different value sets than what I had coming in with. And just to pick through, I think a lot of the people that I went to school with are amazing people. I just had to pick through the layers a bit more than I was mm-hmm. used to. Yeah, um, right. But when you were when you were in school, in business school, you also had a big hand in a lot of things that were going on. There was a famous Thanksgiving dinner, I think, that you may have started that tradition. What, what did you do? Yeah, I... S- I had a bunch of dinners when I was at Tuck. I called them Tuck Tastes with this idea that people truly bond when they're able to sit together over food. You might sit in a classroom with somebody or a business meeting or, you know, an exercise of some sort, and you get to know them a little bit. But I feel like when you sit at the table with somebody and break bread with them, that's when the the walls come down a little bit. And that's when you get to know what motivates people and what drives them. And so I wanted to create a venue at Tuck because I felt like there were lots of opportunities to get together and socialize in a loud kind of boozy setting. I wanted to create an opportunity for people to get together and break bread with one another so that they could have conversation. Mm. And so after I'd done a number of these Tuck Taste dinners with my friend Lucia, who helped out immensely, I the head of the MBA program office at the time asked me if I was interested in putting on a Thanksgiving dinner. Um, So I said yes, thinking it was going to be like 35, 40 people, which I had done these tuck taste dinners for over, you know, 150 people, but 
it was a little bit different level of prep for Thanksgiving because mm-hmm. I think Thanksgiving is quite turkey. You know, it's all the things, all yes. the trimmings. There are a lot of requirements for Thanksgiving. And most of the people who were going to be at this were international students who had never experienced an American Thanksgiving before. So I really wanted them and their families to have a great American Thanksgiving, a bountiful table, beautiful mm-hmm. decorations. And so I, it ended up being 85 people. I was cooking in five different ovens around (laughs) campus and around Hanover. People loaned out their ovens for the day, so I was cooking turkeys everywhere. Um, Everything was from scratch, including the bread that we used for the stuffing was was all made. Wow. Um, And it was – my mom did it with me, and she made me promise never to volunteer to do something (laughs) like that again. But it was was a really special experience, and I still have people from the class of 2015 and 16 who – tell me that they were at that dinner and how how special it was for them yeah, to have not, that. They're not gonna they're not gonna forget that and that makes it all the more uh, special, right? Um, we've been you, you've been talking a little bit about uh, about leadership in a few different ways, but I want to just kind of get your views a little bit more closely now. So you were um, you were in, a, in an organization for 13 years where leadership is everything. It's life and death, and, and there's a huge emphasis on it. So what what's your what's your perspective? I mean, what is this thing that we all talk about in business school and in life about leadership? What does it mean to you, and what is it? It's such a good question, and I think everybody defines leadership in a different way. I remember during my classes here at Tuck, a lot of debate around what, what is leadership. I think that where I focus on leadership is on this idea of putting others before yourself. And I think leadership, of course, of an organization involves mission and and vision and all of these things that a leader has to do. But I think the most fundamental thing to be a leader is you need to think about how to get people to do things that they may not want to do. Mm -hmm. And the way I've always approached that is by investing and caring enough in the people that they then want to do the things because they feel passionate for both the mission and they also feel passionate about the team that we've created. Um, So for me, leadership is about people and about a a certain degree of selflessness Hmm. and putting others' needs before your own. Uh, The Marines, it's very common. You ask a Marine how you eat at the table and the officer always eats last. Right. The food goes around to the entire squad or platoon before the officer eats. And I, and that's, and that was very pervasive at the Naval Academy. And that, I think, is a great metaphor for how I approach leadership, that you need to empower and supply and replenish the, the people you're leading, and they will make things happen. Yeah. If you replenish yourself first, there may not be enough left. Yeah, there's a lot of people who don't do what you're talking about uh, in many walks of life. Uh, and it's a form of, uh, of servant leadership when you get right down to it, um, where, where the leader is in service of the people that she is supervising, in a sense. Well, the Navy's mantra is ship, shipmate, self. And that's the order in which you prioritize your decisions, mm-hmm. that the ship always comes first, and then your shipmates, and last is yourself. And I think just growing up in that for, you know, 13 years active duty, four years at the Naval Academy and another five years in the reserves is just ingrained in the way I perceive leadership in an or any organization. Right. Now, earlier you mentioned um, your desire to, to start a family and to do what um, um, you saw the women in your life uh, do. Uh, and... Um, 
so could you tell us a little bit about how uh, that decision-making process and when you decided to do something about that? Yeah. So when I graduated from Tech and I was going to McKinsey in London, I started, gosh, four months after graduation, but I moved to London right away with the mission of dating full-time. Full time while starting a consulting job. In well, no, I wasn't. Country. I wasn't gonna. I wasn't gonna do it while I started consulting. I had four months before, before. I started, <laughs> and I was going to date full time for those four months. I was going to make it my job. I thought I have made everything else in my life that I wanted happen. I'm going to make this happen too. Um, so I dated full time, and then I started McKinsey, and really nothing materialized um, once I was working. And so I found myself, after watching a couple of my friends start families or try to start families, um, thinking a lot about my age and that I was getting older and that a lot of the relationships that I had been in failed because I had never allowed them to develop as a relationship should. I had simply looked at them as a means to becoming a mother. Mm. And... It was interesting to be able to step back and see, like, this is why relationships aren't working out because I was never even thinking about the person as, you know, another person and Mm -hmm. as a, you know, with their own needs Mm -hmm. and things that they bring to the table. It was truly a means to an end. And I'm sorry if any of my ex-boyfriends are listening that I did that to you. Um, So it became pretty clear to me that the kid was what I wanted. Mm -hmm. And that was... For my life, I had wanted to be a mom. Right. And I started getting in touch with people who knew some single mothers by choice, or SMBC, the pretty widely used acronym in our community. Um, And I started talking to some of these women about their decision processes. And I started noodling on it. I went to see a fertility doctor just to understand where was I? Could I do this? What were my options? Because I was... 37, so getting towards the tail end of when I could have kids. Um, Nobody knows when the real tail end is. It's different for everyone. And so I thought I ought to just see Mm -hmm. so I know, so I can make an informed decision. I was a consultant after all. I like taking data and then making (laughs) decisions based on information and data. Um, So I did that, and I kind of tabled it for a few months because I was focusing on my career, and I thought, well, I'm not sure I'm ready to make this leap yet. And then, you know, a series of other events in in life just kind of conspired and led me to a point where I thought, you know what, I think I think I do need to move forward with this. I kind of set a date that I would move forward and started looking in more earnest. I went to see a a counselor who specializes in helping people make decisions to use to use donors for part of the reproductive process. Um, these specialists see both men and women who mm-hmm. are thinking about using donors. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was able to learn a lot more about about that, I had some real questions about like who would you know who are these sperm donors out there and yes, who, who are they are all they? creeps? And I think, <laughs> it, luckily, I was living in the UK. It's much more highly regulated there. The United States, the the laws surrounding this are kind of what you would expect out of a capitalistic society. But it's whereas in the UK, they've really made efforts to make sure that the laws around it are supportive of the children. So in the United States, it's not uncommon to hear stories of donors with 50 offspring. Five, five zero? 50, 150. Oh, my God. Um, because in the U.S., you know, you think about if I was if I was choosing a, a donor, I would love a, a, a Tuck grad or a Dartmouth grad because, you know, that indicates something to me about potential int- intelligence. And I would want somebody who's, you know, certain 
prime physical characteristics. And so you can imagine that these people who have these things that mm. seem to be highly desirable on this market would would get paid more and therefore would donate more. Right. So, And there's not a lot of government regulation surrounding this industry. Mm. Um, so in the UK, there is a lot. It's built to protect children. Um, I felt really comfortable after having a discussion with a counselor around who are the people that are donating. She said, Almost 100% of them are organ donors. They donate blood. Like, they are people who feel like they have something that they should give back because they can. Um, mm. So I just got to a point where I felt better about it. I certainly uh, had conversations with a couple of my friends, uh, my gay friends, who I thought maybe maybe that would be a way forward and ultimately decided that that would be complicated in a way I didn't necessarily want to complicate mm. um, my life because I didn't, I think in the end, I had chosen not to engage in any of the relationships I was in because I hadn't found somebody who I wanted to co-parent with. Mm. And I think using a known donor in my life would have meant co-parenting. Some people are able to use known donors and have a very, you know, arm's length relationship with that donor. I'm not sure that would have worked for me. Right. Um, so I ultimately decided that I would choose a choose a sperm donor from a sperm bank. And, uh, and you did. I did. And yeah. um, is there a limit on how many um, donations this uh, donor can, can give? So ten, ten, tr- 10 families in the UK. 10 families. 10, ten successful families. or 10? Ten? 10 successful families. So I, I think that if I wanted to have another like, biological sibling for my daughter, mm-hmm. I am already one of the 10 families. So I see. And so... Um, so that means then that your daughter uh, probably has um, some half-brothers and sisters, or will have. Probably. So I know that the donor has, has, a, has a child um, of his own, mm-hmm. and I had quite a bit of information about him. Um, Do you ever meet him? No. That, nope. Um, my daughter will have the opportunity to to have his information when she turns 18. She can petition to have his information, which would just be his name and last known address. And then she can reach out and he might say no. Um, yeah, that's... And that's something that I'm prepared for. And she will certainly grow up knowing, you know, that she's a child of a donor and right. that he will always be painted as a person who allowed our family to exist in the way it does. And, and you, you said, so he's, he has his own child, so he's, I don't know if he's, he's married. married. He's yes, married. He's yeah. um, married, which makes me think about, I mean, this is irrelevant in many ways, but his own uh, spouse and mm-hmm. what her views were about all of this. I imagine, yeah. It's, it's an interesting conversation. And when I said I had asked a couple of my, my friends, one of them we got quite far in the process, and he ultimately decided to say no because his parents weren't comfortable with the fact that I could leave the UK because if he was going to donate, they wanted to be involved in, in the child's life. Mm. And because I'm American and have no, you know, had no right to stay in the UK, mm. I, I didn't have, you know, I had a visa, but they could take that away. Um, they weren't comfortable with it. And so he ultimately said no. So I think these are complex decisions. Um, right. And, um, and so now um, your daughter, who I have uh, met, is a charming, uh, very young uh, girl <laughs> with a big, uh, a big smile and lots on her mind already is going to be, uh, let's hope, another gen. Um, uh, she's going to know when she's old enough to understand. That's kind of how you think about it. 
Yes. I, I mean, I think I will, you know, she sometimes, there, the baby shark phenomenon is sweeping the nation. And in the baby shark song, there's one that says daddy shark. And so, you know, she has used the word daddy before. And I'm very clear with her, like, oh, no, we, you know, you don't have a daddy. You have, you have a mommy and right. you have a nana and a grandpa and a grandma and we have Penny, you know, and, and this is our family. And some families have daddies and some don't. And some have mommies and some don't. And so our family, you have a, you have a mommy. And, uh, and I think that will be the conversation until she's old enough to start asking the why. And then, you know, we're going to have to think about how we have yeah. that conversation. And there's a, a lot of guidance out there. I think with anything related to parenting, everybody's got their opinions mm -hmm. and you just have to do what you feel is best for your family. And so right. once those conversations come up, my policy is going to be to be as honest with her as, as I know how. Um, so I think within the realm of not getting into too much grisly detail with her, I will, <laughs> I will share, I will share any details that she wants to have. And I will be supportive as she gets older. If she wants to try and find, Donor siblings, we can do that. Um, there's there's mechanisms to do that, but I'm not going to undertake any of that without her. I think that's really her choice as she grows up. Have you ever thought about the fact that you years from now might have will may meet some of those siblings and half siblings, and they're um, they're they're somewhat related to you in a way. <laughs> I have, and that actually gives me a strange level of comfort because having a child is hard no matter what. Having a child on your own, I think, is maybe even harder. And I had initially thought that I would want to have a sibling for her, so that way when I'm no longer in this world, she will have someone. Um, but since then, I've realized that I think one is plenty for me. <laughs> so the knowledge that there is biological family out there for her is great because I know I'm raising her around chosen family, around my friends and their kids, and they're all called aunties and uncles and cousins, and she will be surrounded by people who will be part of our chosen family for her whole young life. But if when I'm gone she needs to feel like there's a biological family out there for her, I'm comforted knowing that's there too. Right, right. Um, now, I appreciate your sharing this and your honesty. There's going to be people listening who will uh, might be in the same situation and or might think maybe they will be in the same situation. Um, we're going we're gonna to wrap up in a minute, but I want to ask you um, kind of a question that uh, I, I like to ask uh, guests, which is, uh, which is about advice. Uh, but this, is, this advice is for yourself. If you can magically transport yourself back to when you were 20 years old or 21 years old, and you could sit next to that 21-year-old Jen. Maybe she was huddled in the library and hearing what we've heard about you. Um, and you, uh, you, you go over and you lean over and you say, 21-year-old Jen, there's one thing you really need to know. There's one thing I want to share with you. What, what would that be? What would that advice be to yourself way back? It would be that you don't need to prove anything to anybody but yourself. Mm. And that you're good enough as you are. I spent a lot of time trying to achieve for the sake of achievement, and I did all of that. I was very successful in all the ways I defined success. But when I look back, a lot of those things I did because I was trying to prove something to the world. But I think I'm done proving things now, and I'm undertaking the exercise of enjoying my life. And I wish I'd done that when I was younger. 
That is fabulous advice. I might take you up on it. It's never too late, right? <laughs> True. <laughs> uh, Jennifer Teets, thank you so much for being with us on the SIDCast. Oh, this has been great fun. Thank you. 